<clears throat> as uh, we are wrapping up our sermon series in Hosea, um, I just want to point out that we chose to title it, I Will Be Faithful to You. And that's exactly what we're remembering with these cards. As we're saying, Jesus, thank you. Right? You've been faithful. You've been good. I've experienced your consistency and your loyalty through my community, through your life with me. And this, this sentence, I will be faithful to you, is straight out of Hosea chapter 2, verse 20. And it has one primary meaning where God is saying and promising to his people, I will be faithful to you. But it also has these underlayers of current when you, when you plant that in the total message of Hosea, where you realize as God is faithful to us, he actually wins back our hearts and he wins back our faithfulness to him. So we respond back to him and I will be faithful to you. And as we are transformed through that relationship, it changes who we are and it makes us able to be faithful outwardly. Where now I'm able to be faithful to my friendships and my marriage and to my neighbors and even my enemies. And today is the crescendo of that faithfulness in Hosea. And I, I would say this is probably the, the part of the sermon series that we've all been waiting for. This is the part of the story where we're all going, all right, but get to the he rescues his wife part. That's what I want to hear about, Right. That's what we're doing today. And my, my previous approach has been a little bit different. Um, I've been anchoring us to the executive summary of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then I've been drawing that thread forward into the body of Hosea. Today we're doing the opposite. We're looking at the end of Hosea, chapter 13, 14, and then we're anchoring that backwards into 1, 2, and 3 for clarity. So I'm going to read uh, 13 and 14. It's a bit of a larger section. Uh, I'm using the New Living Translation. So if you want to follow in, in my version, there's a QR code on the screen. You can snap that with your phone. It'll take you to a website. Or if you want to follow in your version, that's also great. But this is chapter 13 and 14 of Hosea. Um, would you pray with me before we jump into this? Father, again, would you just illuminate your word? Help us at an academic level, understand the language, and at a heart level, understand you and what you're trying to communicate. Would you just help us see your good news, as well as your sturdiness, as well as your seriousness in this prophecy? Thank you. Amen. I'm actually going to pick up in the last verse of chapter 12 and then move into 13. Then by a prophet... The Lord brought Jacob's descendants out of Egypt, and by that prophet they were protected. But the people of Israel have bitterly provoked the Lord, so their Lord will now sentence them to death in payment for their sins. When the tribe of Ephraim spoke, the people shook with fear, for that tribe was important in Israel. But the people of Ephraim sinned by worshiping Baal, and thus they sealed their destruction. But now they continue to sin by making silver idols, images shaped skillfully with human hands. Sacrifice to these, they cry, kiss the hat calf idols. Therefore, they will disappear like the morning mist, like the dew in the morning sun, like chaff blown by the wind, like smoke from a chimney. God says, I've been the Lord your God ever since I brought you out of Egypt. You must acknowledge no God but me, for there's no other Savior. I took care of you in the wilderness in that dry and thirsty land. But when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. So now I will attack you like a lion, like a leopard that lurks along the road, like a bear whose cubs have been taken away. I will tear out your heart. I will devour you like a hungry lioness and mangle you like a wild animal. You're about to be destroyed, O Israel. Yes, by me, your only helper. Now where's your king? Let him save you. Where are all the leaders of the land, the kings and the officials that you demanded of me? In my anger, I gave you kings, and in my fury, I took them away. 
Ephraim's guilt has been collected and his sin has been stored up for punishment. Pain has come to the people like the pain of childbirth, but they're like a child who resists being born. The moment of birth has arrived, but they stay in the womb. Should I ransom them from the grave? Should I redeem them from death? O death, bring on your terrors. O grave, bring on your plagues, for I will not take pity on them. Ephraim was the most fruitful of all his brothers, but the east wind, a blast from the Lord, will arise in the desert. All their flowing springs will run dry and all their wells will disappear. Every precious thing they own will be plundered and carried away. The people of Samaria must bear the consequences of their guilt because they've rebelled against their God. They will be killed by an invading army. Their little ones dashed to death against the ground and their pregnant women ripped open by swords. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord and say to him, forgive all of our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Assyria can't save us, nor can our war horses. So never again will we say to the idols that we made, you are our gods. No, Yahweh, in you alone do the orphans find mercy. And the Lord says, Then I will heal you of your faithfulness, and my love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I will be to Israel like a refreshing dew from heaven, and Israel will blossom like the lily. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars in Lebanon, and its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. And my people will again live under my shade, They will flourish like grain and blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. Oh, Israel, stay away from idols. I'm the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I'm like a tree that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. Let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right, and righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. This is God's word. This is heavy. It's thick. There's immense anger as well as immense grace. And I think very fairly, it is confusing. Which is why I believe Hosea ends with this little addendum in verse 9. Let those who are wise understand these things. Because it's confusing. (laughs) Let those with discernment listen carefully. It requires careful listening. I think there's three potential dangers of misunderstanding Hosea, and we see all of them here in chapters 13 and 14. One dangerous misunderstanding of Hosea is that we misunderstand God's anger. Another is that we misunderstand his faithfulness. And another is that we misunderstand how our relationship with him is restored. So let's go through those one at a time. Number one, we'll misunderstand his anger if we minimize unfaithfulness. Here's what I mean by that. If we prejudge his tone or his word choice, we'll reject him and what he says before we even understand him. God, you're just too harsh, too angry, too hot. I don't want to listen. Sure, Israel's being unfaithful. I get it. But they're really just participating in another religion, right? Is God really justified to be this angry? And I would argue that Hosea is teaching us unfaithfulness is more than just a religious condition of having the right or wrong facts. 
unfaithfulness here in the context of Israel is what's called apostasy. Theologically, apostasy means voluntarily and consciously abandoning faith in God who you've promised yourself to. In one word, rebellion. What that means is Israel has measured the character and the promises of God, the God who's created them, the God who's specifically revealed himself to them through the prophets and their history, and in one word, they look at him and say, no. That's what's going on here. It's a heart posture that's directly opposed to the goodwill and the redemptive plan of God. And so, though this part might be unintentional, I think it's true to say their unfaithfulness is counteracting the redemptive will of God in the world. And it results in moral decay. And it results in moral decay because of their desires, how they've become disordered. What they're saying is, I I want to be loyal to God, but I also love this more than God. I love money, sex, power, security, pleasure, ease, whatever that is. And all of those things are good things meant to be ordered underneath his love and leadership. So all those are good desires, but they're disordered, and they've led Israel to participate in cult prostitution, murder, thievery, and religious hypocrisy. And I think it's fair to say that all of those things are only a few steps down the road of unfaithfulness. They're an inevitable result when we look at God and say, no. Tim Keller says this about anger and love. He says, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even if it's they themselves, you get angry. This is the wise and discerning understanding of God's anger in Hosea, that his love is so strong that he's expressing his anger. His redemptive plan is so good that he's fiercely defending it. And he's continuing to be faithful through his anger. His anger is a moving energy that's drawing his people back to faithfulness. Now, that's the first misunderstanding. The second one ties directly into that. If we misunderstand his faithfulness and how it moves him forward, We'll take him for granted and we will treat him dismissively. Hosea chapter 6, we read this a few weeks ago, so I'm just going to highlight. Hosea 6 says this, the people of Israel are suffering consequence, so they look to God and they say, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces. Now he'll heal us and in just a short time he'll restore us so that we may live in his presence. And God pauses and responds like this, oh Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I want to show you love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. His people feel the consequence of their actions and the faithfulness of God's corrective anger. They're feeling all of that, but their repentance is driven by pain avoidance. And the repentance is based on an assumption that, oh, he'll go easy on us. He'll be faithful, just wait. That's the heart posture behind their repentance. And so they repent, but then they continue in their idolatrous affairs. And this leads us to our final misunderstanding that might be dangerous. That if we misunderstand how that relationship is restored, then we'll get caught in empty religion. Here's what I mean. 
So Trevor, are you saying that chapter six tells us that to restore our relationship, we just need to be really, really sincere and have really, really strong faith? Is that what chapter six is telling us? Here's where I would say the gospel of Jesus is unique in the entire world because religions do say that. They say, you've been unfaithful. Here's how you earn your way back and receive the love and faithfulness of God. Here are your metrics, here are your prayers, here are your postures, here's your lifestyle of holiness. And all of that can even exist in a mixed understanding of Christianity. So religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel of Jesus is unique in the whole world because it says, you've been unfaithful, but your husband's here to bring you home. Before the first word of creation, He knew who you would be. He knew how you would be unfaithful. And he's here to bring you home with love and forgiveness. And now that we're home in the safety of his love, he's giving us opportunity to relearn how to love him back. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And this is why we're anchoring our whole message today to chapters one, two, and three, because this is what the executive summary tells us. When we get confused and lost in the anger of chapter 13 and the calls to repentance in chapter 13 and 14, we have to anchor them back to the loving husband that rescues his unfaithful wife in chapter three. So let's go through chapter three right now and look at how the life of Hosea gives us three reasons that the gospel of Jesus is good news and not empty religion. (laughs) There's three points that I have here. Number one, that Hosea knows his wife's unfaithfulness. He already knows. And he loves her. Second point, Hosea brings home his wife and he pays her debt. And the third reason that the gospel of Jesus is good news is Hosea gives his wife safety to relearn desire and faithfulness. Now, in chapter 1, 2, 3, Hosea's relationship with Gomer is set up by God as a direct image and parallel of his relationship with his people. It is 100% fair to look at what happens to Hosea and his spouse and draw that to connection of what God's trying to describe about his relationship with his people. And the first thing that Hosea teaches us about his interactions with his wife is that he fully knows her unfaithfulness. And he fully loves her. Now, why is this important? Because to be fully known and fully loved is the like, greatest dream that a human can have. And, and let, let me explain that just a little bit more. You probably understand what it feels like to be loved, but unknown, right? Maybe this is you walk into a new church and everyone's like, hey, we love you, we're so glad you're here. And in your heart, you're thinking, you don't even know me. <laughs> like, how, how can you mean that? Or maybe you have a parent relationship where you know they love you, but you don't think they actually know you. They know a 10-year-old version of you. I know you love me, but you don't actually know me anymore. You don't know the stuff I've been up to the last couple years. Maybe you've experienced social relationships where you feel care and affection, but again, they, you just know me at a social level. You don't know the aches and the yearnings of my heart. And when we experience this, we feel lonely. Now, we also understand the opposite of that. When someone does get to know you deeply, intimately, and they walk away. 
when they have known your heart, but they respond with rejection and coldness. And I would say this is the, probably the greatest level of soul pain that a human being can experience, is to be known and rejected. But what about to be known all the way to the bottom and still be loved? This is what we see in the life of Hosea when in chapter one, God says, go and marry a woman knowing she will be unfaithful to you. And then in chapter three, verse one, God says, then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though knowing she commits adultery with another lover. And this will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Now notice this. God's specific command to Hosea is, go and love your wife again. Not go and correct, go and retrain, go and berate. He's not saying, Hosea, you're obligated to this woman. You're her husband. In fact, Hosea has no legal or social obligation to this woman. In fact, he has the legal right by the law of the Torah to kill her because she's broken her covenant and is an unfaithful human being. And he's called by God to go and love his wife again, knowing she's in the middle of committing adultery with another man. She's literally like a couple blocks away sleeping with some dude. And he knows it. And God says, go and love her again. This is superhuman. This doesn't make sense. And Hosea, in the text, knows his wife's darkest potential for unfaithfulness. He's not blind. It's not a vague love. It's a specific, I know you to the bottom. And God gives him supernatural love. Now, maybe you've said this to God or to others. You would never love me if you knew. If you knew, you would never love me or look at me the same. And God here is saying he knows fully. And he loves fully, truly. Tim Keller says this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a whole lot like being loved by God. And this is what we need more than anything. And this is the message from God to his people in the life of Hosea. He knows fully, truthfully, and he loves fully. There is zero comfort in an unknowing God that is nothing but blind and vague love. But there is immense comfort in a God who fully knows, where you are 100% exposed and vulnerable and seen. When every single facet of your life, your head, your heart, your thoughts, your actions, the things you don't even remember, when that is laid bare under the knowing gaze of Jesus, and he looks you in the eye and says, I know. I know. I love you. 
There is nothing like that in the world. And this is the kind of good news that just might change someone's life. This is the kind of news that just might transform the human soul. And this is the kind of love that you can trust and build your life upon. And Keller continues, he says, the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever even dared hope. And this liberates us from pretense and faking. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. This is what Hosea lays before us. And it's too beautiful to even look at. And this is the kind of love that moves Hosea outward toward his wife with a redemptive plan. And this is point number two, that Hosea, moved by fully knowing and fully loving his wife, leaves his home with a redemptive plan, and he brings his wife home, and he pays her debts. The next verse says Hosea, is Hosea chapter 3, verse 2. He says, So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver, five bushels of barley, and a measure of wine. Now, Gomer here, Hosea's wife, is in debt. Her legal place in her marriage to Hosea has been violated. She's broken her covenant, and she's in, she has indebted herself to her new lovers. Historically, she's likely working as a temple-owned religious prostitute. A temple-owned religious prostitute. She cannot leave of her own will. She can't buy her own freedom, nor can she legally call upon her marriage to Hosea as her primary identity. She has no legal right. And so she's stuck in the gutter of her own sin. And this is a parallel for the situation that we find ourselves in. But verse 4 ties the good news that Hosea goes to rescue his wife. It ties that story to the story of God's people. Would you read with me Hosea verse 4? This, that Hosea goes to his wife and buys her out of her debt, it shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince, without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their rescuing king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness, and I would insert faithfulness. What chapter 4 is saying is there's a promised king who will redeem God's people, who will bring them home, pay their debts. And this promised king ends up being Jesus of Nazareth. And the, all of the gospels in the New Testament, as well as all of the apostles who write, they try so hard to legitimately and thoughtfully demonstrate that Jesus Christ is both the legal and the royal fulfillment of David's bloodline. This is the king. This is David's descendant promised in Hosea. He is here as the one who will know his people's unfaithfulness. He will go out knowing their unfaithfulness and in love will pay their debts and bring them home. And like Hosea's wife, Jesus' people could not pay for their own redemption. We could not purchase our own freedom and we have no legal right to relationship with God but the promised king pays our debts. He moves forward with love to pay our debts. So where we deserve death for our rebellion, he gives his, his life in place for ours, and he gives us his righteousness to bring us home because we don't deserve relationship. 
We've violated the terms of the covenant. We are dead in sin. But as God's son, Jesus extends his covenant of adoption and he allows for remarriage through his grace. And he did all of this knowing our sin ahead of time, right? He knows our propensity for ongoing faithlessness. He knows that we will not respond with perfection. And he still knowingly loves us to the point of coming to us to pay our debts and to bring us home. And he guarantees this place in his home, not based on your past, nor your present, nor even our future performance. He bases all of it on his performance and righteousness and faithfulness. And what that means is that we are guaranteed for all of eternity, no matter what your tomorrow or next 10 years looks like. And this creates a new safety of relationship that teaches us the third point of why Hosea is good news. It's good news because Hosea and God gives his people safety to relearn desires and faithfulness. Go backwards a step to Hosea chapter 3, verse 3. It says this, Then I, Hosea, said to Gomer, my wife, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. And during this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. And then he continues to tie that to verse 4. But there's this really peculiar saying. I'm bringing you home, but during this time, you'll not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. Now, verse 4, again, is the main point, anchoring it to David's ascendant, Jesus Christ, who goes out to rescue his people. But here's some subtext that is true and right in chapter 3, verse 3. Now, can I be really blunt for a second? If I was a single dad with three kids who's been living on my own for several years, and now my spouse and sexual partner just came home, I would probably want to make love with my wife. Now, but notice here the gentle sensitivity of both Hosea and God. They know and see Gomer. They see that she's been a sex worker for over three years, minimum. They know and see that her understanding of giving and receiving sexual love is probably a little bit confused. And she cannot just get plucked from her work as a temple prostitute into a loving and safe home and immediately know how that should go. Now, I've had a few girlfriends before getting married, and before Jesus had won my heart, before I had become faithful to him, I followed our culture's approach to sexuality, which basically says, if you're both consenting and or you're in love, go ahead and do whatever you want. And that's what I followed before my marriage. And so when I got married and tried to come underneath Jesus' leadership and his approach of sexuality, like Gomer, sex for me was a little bit confusing because I had been living a different story for several years. I had been formed by a different story. So even in a healthy, loving marriage, I was importing a previous understanding and a previous set of experiences And it took me several years to relearn what desire is. To relearn how desire is used to produce faithfulness. And this is where Gomer is. This is where you and I are in relationship to God. We have all sorts of cultural understandings about sexuality and prayer, religious performance, obedience, giving, whatever that might be. 
And we cannot import those experiences into a brand new relationship with Jesus because he's saying, I'm giving you time and space to relearn love and desire, knowing you are safe in my love. I believe God here is saying, I'm not asking you to jump into all the religious rhythms, even if they're good and created by him. I believe he's saying, I'm asking you to let me love you and I'm giving you space to rest in my love before you do anything. And I will be patient as you relearn how to love me back in the safety of our marriage. So if you, Christian, feel like a hot mess, me too, (laughs) and our response is, thank you, Jesus, for knowing us to the bottom and loving us to the top. So we can already rest safely in his love We can rest safely in the righteousness that he's given for us while we accept his patience. And we let him be patient with us while we're relearning how to love him back. And as we close, and as I evaluate the totality of Hosea, I have like one big question for myself. Who am I in the story of Hosea? Who am I? Where do I fit? So as a a man and as a husband, I naturally kind of slot myself into Hosea's role, right? Now, gender aside, I just naturally, I want to be the hero, right? I want to be Hosea, the like knight in shining armor that goes out with, with love and mercy and compassion. That's who I want to be. And maybe Hosea was that in a perfect sense. Maybe he wasn't. But the reality of this story is that I am not Hosea. The reality of this story is that I am Gomer. I am the unfaithful wife. And the reality of this story is you are Gomer. All of us show up in relationship with God with mess, problems, and unfaithfulness. But the good news and the reality is God wants to be married to us, right? He's, he's literally asking us to be his bride. And so he's not, and so I would even say you non-Christian, he is asking you, he's inviting you, he's asking you to be his bride. And the reality of this image is all of us show up at the wedding ceremony as the unfaithful, messy spouse. And we don't deserve to walk down the aisle. And we don't deserve to marry the perfect bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And maybe like Gomer, we look and smell like we just walked in off the street. But the unique thing about the gospel of Jesus in the whole world is that he knows how messed up you are. He knows how messed up I am. But rather than saying, will you get married to me in your dirty clothes... He says, I bought you a wedding dress. The wedding dress of a bride is a symbol of her purity and her beauty and the desire that her new husband has for her. And Jesus is saying, you walked in off the street a mess. You're responding to my invitation of marriage. I'm not asking you to walk down the the aisle full of shame and guilt and am I good enough for the man before me? because I smell and look pretty awful. That's not his invitation. His invitation is, I know. I know 
where you've been. I still want to get married to you. And guess what? I bought you the most beautiful, expensive, immaculate wedding dress that anyone in the universe could ever imagine. Would you put it on and come to me? And if this is the invitation of Jesus Christ, I think we need to ask, how will we go down the aisle? If at all, will we look at his offer and say, no? Or will we look at his offer and saunter? <laughs> down the aisle? Or will we look at his offer and say, that sounds great. I'll be back after happy hour. Or will we look at this offer? He says, I fully know you and I fully love you and I've bought you a wedding dress. And will we put on the beauty of Jesus and run and sprint down the aisle because this is a love we do not deserve, but it is a love that will transform and save our soul. This is the message of Hosea. That Jesus has married his people past. He has made us a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, beloved, held by him. That is our right now reality. And the, the marriage of Jesus is also forward looking that there will be a day where we experience the consummation of that marriage in totality. That in a new heaven and a new earth, there will be no shame, no guilt. You will be 100% washed away. That, that wedding dress will no longer feel ill-fitting. It will now be the skin you wear. This is the message of Hosea, and this is the gospel of Jesus, and this is the faithfulness of God that we build our lives on. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I, I do not know how to respond to you. My emotions do not know what to do with you. And this offer is too severe and beautiful to know what to do with. Father, it cuts me. Dare I hope this is true. Do you know me? Will you love me? Will you love me if you know? Holy Spirit, I ask that for, for those of us in this room that are not Christian or maybe we're, we're Christianly religious, I ask that your gospel would come home in a brand new way. And for those of us that know you, would you remind us, would you anchor our hearts to your faithfulness and make us faithful back to you? Give us the severity to cut off our affairs, to be loyal to you. And Jesus, would you build our church on this? As we move to a new building and explore, like, who are we now? Would this be the anchor of our identity? No matter where we are, what our projects are, what we're working on, we are anchored to the faithfulness of God. We are his bride, and we are wearing the wedding dress of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. Father, we love you. Would you turn our hearts to worship as we close today? Amen.